Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. It's day 16 at the 57th New York Film Festival. You look fresh. Thank you. My guest is Ann Thompson, former colleague and um, editor-at-large at at IndieWire. Am I getting your title right? It's been that title for a while now. (laughs) It has. It has. Um, Ann, welcome to to the East Coast and welcome to the New York Film Festival. We're in the bowels of Lincoln Center. We are. We are. Um, and let's just dive into it. In a moment, we're going to hear the complete audio from the press conference for last night's closing night film, Motherless Brooklyn. Of course, the festival continues through this weekend with repeat screenings and showings of some of the more popular films of this year's festival. And um, our guest, Ann Thompson, has a long history with this festival and with uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center, the organization that, um, that runs the festival, now called Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, Ann used to work at, 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 film, at film Society. I still call it the Film Society. I still do, too. Yeah. When um, did you work here? I was, it was in the early 80s. Yeah. And uh, I was the associate editor of Film Comment. And Richard Corliss was the editor. He was the film critic at Time Magazine. Yeah. And so I was really running everything in the office yeah. while he was this sort of, he really was literally the editor at large. <laughs> we were always was trying to track him down. Out in the world? Yeah. Tr- no, he was brilliant. And he, he was totally responsible for what was in that magazine and the cool covers and all the stuff. But I was being um, disruptive and uh, doing weird things like uh, putting Edie the Egg Lady from John Waters movies on uh, the cover of the magazine. And you've had a long and illustrious career as a journalist on, on both coasts. Uh, you've worked for Entertainment Weekly, Premiere... Yeah, yeah. Village Voice. If you're old enough, long enough, you've been everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been. I used a, to make a joke. The joke is, uh, I used to um, work for a bi-monthly, and then I worked for a monthly, and then I worked for a weekly, then I worked for a daily, and now I work twenty-four-seven. That's the joke. <laughs> you've been at IndieWire now almost ten years. You brought me in. I Thank did. You. I brought you in, and then I abandoned you. It was a good to fit, come though. work here. And it's a good fit for you here at Lincoln Center. I'm very proud of you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Um, Well, it would be great. You know, we're at the end of the festival now. And in a minute, we'll talk about, you know, some of the movies that are are standouts. But um, maybe help us just as we're getting to the end of this year's festival and kind of looking back, help us understand the role of this festival. You've been coming to this festival for how long? I love being here in the fall when the air is crisp, yeah. you know, and it's time for the New York Film Festival. Yeah. I was here for Pulp Fiction when there was a a, a, a doctor called yeah. in the house and they had to stop the show because somebody a... reacted to the hypodermic needle going into <laughs> opening John, night, John Travolta. Opening night, 1994. <laughs> it was a big thing. I, I remember meeting and interviewing uh, Pedro Almodovar backstage mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For, for an earlier movie that played here. And um, and I saw a picture of Eric Cohn, the current uh, uh, film editor and chief film critic over at, at IndieWire, where I work now, and who I do a podcast with every week. Once a week. Check it out. Um, but um, Eric with with Pedro, and and it just brought me back. Yeah. I love Pedro Almodovar, and his new movie, is uh, Pain, Pain and Glory, Glory, is so amazing. And so the festival, yeah, all these the years, role? What's the has role played of- the same role. It is, it is about... 
bringing the best of international cinema, many of them shown at Cannes, but everybody wasn't at Cannes. Yeah. Everybody wasn't there. And and pushing them into the fall conversation mm-hmm. with a lot of noise and a lot of brio, mm-hmm. a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Academy is part of that. The Oscars are part of that. The yeah. whole long awards conversation that I track all too carefully. Well, it's a, it's a long, it's a, it's a conversation that you track carefully that for this season has just begun. You were at the Telluride Film Festival, really where the conversation kind of ignites, right? And then it builds. It builds in Toronto, and then it really builds here in New York, which is a whole other thing. New York has always been uh, a little bit like Cannes in the sense that it's got uh, prestige and class Mm -hmm. and a patina of quality. It's curated. Mm -hmm. The main bar, just those 25 films, is the best. And uh, if you make it into that, I mean, tonight we, I saw this Agnes Varda, her last movie, Alas, uh, Varda by Agnes, and it it was, she, her daughter Rosalie was talking about her mother and putting this film together and how excited her mother would be every yeah. si- every time she got into the festival it means something yeah what do you think about um this year's what's what does the season look like to you this year uh, tell us about maybe some of your own highlights they can be films that we've shown certainly but if you know maybe there's films that are outside our festival too i'd love we'd love to just hear sort of what your what what's your take on on well, sort of the fall season Marriage Story started at Telluride. Yeah. And that was our centerpiece film. And that last was week. your centerpiece. Yeah. And it continued here. So that's a perfect example. All right. So the Netflix movies yeah. are really front and center this fall. Uh-huh. Uh, they have put together an extraordinary group of, of films. Uh-huh. And um, so Marriage Story went from Telluride to Toronto and then, then your centerpiece in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, the other one that's going going far is Irishman. Mm. Um, so I, di- I was so disappointed not to be able to be here for opening night. That's one of my favorite things, to come to the big show, go to the party afterwards at mm-hmm. Tavern on the Green, mm-hmm. and talk to all my friends in the industry who always are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Irishman I saw in Los Angeles and recognized sitting through the three and a half hours of it without moving, mm. without ever twitching, um, that it was uh, one of probably one of the top three movies contending for the Oscar. Mm. And the other ones are Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. as you would expect, and Marriage Story. Mm. So Netflix has two of them. So you think that we're early in the season, but for you and from your vantage point, it's already kind of tightening up the race, so to speak, that will continue after New York Film Festival and on into the into the winter is already kind of well, coalescing around a few films. The festivals really do provide the launch pad and uh-huh. there are some late entries. Um, uh-huh. That's why it was so important for Netflix to put uh, Irishman because I spoke to people around that conversation and that uh-huh. decision it was important for them to put it in you, for opening night they they didn't want to miss that and yeah. they they wanted to make sure they could get the vfx done and all that yeah. stuff but they wanted it yeah. in the festival well do you think with that in mind and everything you're telling us um and i'm asking you not just about the new york film festival but uh, do you think the role of film festivals is evolving or changing how how are you seeing the role of festivals change now in light of sort of the way that films are being produced and distributed changing? We're in a very uh, dicey time. Mm. Um, I find myself getting angry at the exhibitors for sticking to the windows, the 90-day windows, this this kind of self-destructive, lemming-like mm. pursuit of a cliff 
is, mm. is how I see it. Mm. Um, because uh, Netflix, imagine that some of the best movies are being made by Netflix. Well, wouldn't you as a theater owner want to show those movies? So a lot of people have said that I'm, I'm tough on the theater owners, and I think I, I, think I, ha I am. And why, um, why are you? And so, so some of these movies, um, like Irishman and Marriage Story, should be shown in theaters and given a proper release. And if they could play the big theater chains, even Dolomite is My Name, which I love, by mm -hmm. the way, mm -hmm. uh, which showed in Toronto, is, is a movie that could play really, really well That's for specific a audiences. Movie starring Eddie Murphy. That's right. And and it would play really well for black audiences around the country uh -huh. as well as other people. It breaks out. It's a complete crossover movie. Uh -huh. But there's no Netflix isn't in the theater business. Right. They're not in that yeah. theatrical release business. And so it's a it's a whole area that is being um, underserved and left aside and not um, properly uh, maximized but, these but, movies. But if what you're saying, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but tell me and tell me if I'm interpreting it. If what you're saying is Netflix might be more in tune with the audience and where the audience's habits are going, what does that mean for a place like Film at Lincoln Center where we have four movie theaters? To ask, to, to answer your first question, yeah. Netflix has yeah. been using the film festivals. Yeah to show their movies yeah. so that they can get audiences to see them. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really important to them. But they're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who can't get theatrical distribution anymore mm -hmm. who use festivals as a way to get their movies in front of audiences. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the whole question of who gets a theatrical release now is pretty wide open. Mm. And so what do you think is the prognosis for whether it's Film at Lincoln Center or the other uh, art house, uh, you know, nonprofit art house cinemas around the country? Is there still the what's the opportunity? What's the potential? What's the likelihood of of, of audiences still embracing? Well, it's the fall. And so I'm very curious to see how yeah. these movies play. The, the, the good ones come out in the fall, the ones that actually yeah. have so much going for them that yeah. they can make it into the awards conversation, yeah. and that gives them a big boost. Um, but we've seen a number of films over the, over, the, over the past year that should have done business, that would have done business, mm -hmm. that didn't. Things like Late Night or Britney Runs a Marathon, you know, that, uh, that just, or, or, or um, the the movie that came after yesterday, Blinded by the Light, uh, you know, these are movies that sold for big money at uh -huh. Sundance and then were incredibly underwhelming uh, uh -huh. at the box office, partly due to how much was spent on them. So you're watching movies, um, stating the obvious for people who may not follow you, and they should, they should go to IndieWire.com, they should check out your podcast. Um, you're watching movies with a few different, through a few different lenses the 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 industry potential for a movie the awards um possibility uh the 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 certainly the craft and whether it works creatively whether it actually uh, achieves what the director sought out to 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 do with the movie um it it makes me want to ask you some questions now about our closing night film last night and we're going to hear the audio from that press conference momentarily ed norton's motherless brooklyn which you've actually uh you saw before you even came to new york right I did. Um, Ed Norton is a fascinating example of a really smart, gifted actor. Yeah. And we know what a good actor he is. Yeah. There's no questions about that. Yeah. He's been nominated three times. Um, 
but he um, has also a reputation for getting involved in rewriting, getting into the editing room, um, having an opinion on the set, uh, often when he disagrees with the director. And um, I believe that as time has gone on, he has become more and more frustrated because, of course, the industry itself isn't making the kinds of movies that he's interested in. This is not a guy who's trying to make money. He's trying to make art. Mm. And so he has thrown everything. This is like the big all-in, all the chips into the center of the poker table, and he's emulating Warren Beatty in Reds, and he's um, chewing on this extraordinarily rich role uh, from Jonathan Lethem's book, the yeah. 1999 book, uh, Lionel Esrog, this guy with Tourette syndrome. And it's a wonderful part, and he's great in it, and he's um, taken the movie from the 90s into the 50s, and it's beautifully made, it's uh -huh. gorgeous. And the question is whether he's thrown Growing so much yeah. at the audience that it's too much to absorb. So what you're saying is that, and, and for folks who who weren't able to see the film at closing night, it'll be out very soon. Warner Brothers is releasing it, but this is a really ambitious movie. Totally, maybe not the kind of it, it's not the kind of movie that maybe studios are making as as often. Is that totally? And what the studio involved here did, Warner Brothers. Um, <laughs> he had gotten backing from Toby Emmerich when he was head of New Line, but mm -hmm. New Line wasn't making this kind of movie. Mm -hmm. So he, he was able to develop it, and mm -hmm. then he was able to uh, raise independent financing and get his cast assembled, including Alec Baldwin um, and uh, Guggenman. Betha Raw, he, it's it's a and and Willem Dafoe, yeah. it's it's a really good cast, and and uh, Bobby Cannavale, who yeah. I love. Yeah. Uh, so then he gets um, Toby Emmerich becomes head of the studio, Warner Brothers, and says, "Go for it, dude! You know, just raise the money independently, right. and we'll release it for you." Wow. And that's how it got made for twenty six million dollars. Twenty six. It's pretty good for twenty six. What what he got on the screen, and, and it has an. Ex I would say one of the best things about the movie absolutely is the music yeah. it's extraordinary and michael k williams is really good in a kind of jazz musician role yeah. in the movie and and the the soundtrack and all the music is exquisite the film is motherless brooklyn it's the closing night film of the 57th new york film festival just about to take a listen to the press conference the closing night press conference our guest has been ann thompson from IndieWire. and thank you very much for being here i loved being here eugene <laughs> Let's take a listen now to the press conference from Motherless Brooklyn. Um, I want to start with the, the the novel and the film's relationship to it. What would because really the novel is a jumping off point for what you did with this film, Edward. Yeah, Jonathan's. Uh, you know, I. I I remember I had mutual friends with Jonathan Lethem in the mid-90s. I was kind of aware of him um, as an up-and-coming, you know, local guy. And um, someone tipped me off that he'd written, someone tipped me off before it came out. He, he's, Jonathan's writ, about to publish this book about a detective with Tourette syndrome. And, 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 um, and you sh it's really good. You should check it out. And uh, the nothing more high-minded than the greedy actor in me was like, ooh, let's check that out. And I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I, I chased it down and I got, I got it. Um, 
I'm dating, I'm dating everything about this by saying I got a Xerox copy um, of it Did in galleys. Did you fax it to somebody? Yeah, or, someone yeah. faxed me, it, you know, and, um, and I read it. And, uh, and I was just, I was very, very taken with this character. He, he had written this kind of hot mess of paradoxes and funny and touching, sympathetic and everything. I, and, I, and also Jonathan, the core... The, on page one, he he did what I hope we transposed somewhat. You you were inside his head and outside witnessing him, and there was an immediate intimacy. And I think those those things are so rare. Like that that the the achievement of instant empathy is is really something. And you realize like this, I'll go anywhere with this guy once I'm hooked that way. And I thought that was that was just a very compelling idea. The um, but later. Jonathan and I talked about the, there's a certain meta-surrealism in his book, the, the Minna and the agency and the guys, they, they feel like they're in a pocket of Brooklyn that has never moved in time. It's, it's written like the 50s, the vernacular is the 50s. And, and I said to him, you know, do you imagine us trying to do this? This could feel like Reservoir Dogs or, or, or um, the Blues Brothers, you know, guys in fedoras with a Prius going by, you know, is that what you, and, and he goes, no, 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 I, I, he was like, I think we play it very much straight. And I said, well, I think the only way to play it straight as it's written is to do it in the 50s. And he, fortunately, Jonathan is just, he's one of those artists and he's a cinephile, deep cinephile, a, a, a student of noir literature and film, and he loved, he's for Brooklyn too, so he, he was very, very, he, he did more than gave me his blessing. He said, I don't think faithful adaptations tend to be very good. Springboard off, do something wild. And I felt very liberated. Um, and, and, then, and then the whole, the mashup with the, you know, the socio-political history of what happened in New York in the 50s was something else that interested me. And eventually it all, it all wove together. And did you guys, um, Willem and, and Cuckoo, did you go back to the history of, of New York and how it changed in the whole Robert Moses, you know, scenario when you were getting ready for this movie? And, you know, was it... Uh... Yeah, I mean, my character's not in the novel. And yeah. um, so... Nor is mine. <laughs> Um, so, you know, for me, as, as Edward said, it was it was kind of liber liberating um, to create Laura, but also there was a lot there. You know, when I when I first read uh, the script, I'd never been to Harlem before, so that was a really exciting experience to go and, and you know, um, kind of get a feel for, for the place, the history. The jazz, jazz has been always something that I, you know, have loved for such a long time, so to kind of look at the music. Um, you know, Edward did point me in the direction of the power broker which I <laughs> sort of took a look at but you know it's very very dense and you know um so I you know kind of ha sort of had a, a, a brief look at that uh, but took more um you know inspiration also from Laura's emotional journey because you know as well as all of the you know politics and the, the history I think she goes on such a deep um sort of journey of discovery about her heritage and and life and um so I wanted to kind of make that sort of feel grounded and human as well. So how, how summed through is your copy of The Power Broker? Uh, yeah, you know. no, I knew the Robert Moses yeah. uh, story. Yeah. And it was something that interested me, but of course, in this context, another way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, clearly, 
Uh, the character that Alec plays is a composite it's fiction. It's not, but uh, so much is drawn from uh, the Moses character that, yeah, it was another way to go deep. And, of course, it interested me because uh, it meant something then and it meant something now. <laughs> um, let's open it up to questions from the audience right there. There's a microphone coming. Okay. There it is. Uh, Edward, the idea of taking this book and writing the adaptation, producing the movie, and directing, uh, did you ever worry you were taking on too much? It's a, it looks just like a huge physical production. And how is it for the director to direct the star of the movie, who is also the producer and the writer? <laughs> it's efficient. Um, <laughs> My, convers yeah. my, my, my conversations with myself go very smoothly. Um, the, you know, honestly, like there, there, there are times when, there, there were times when I really just thought, I, I had the, the thought that maybe I should focus completely on the performance after I'd written the script and I, I imagined, but Toby Emmerich, who who gets a lot of credit, like I, you know, it's not often a director will say a studio executive was really a partner in making this happen. But to Toby Emmerich championed this project even when he couldn't get it made himself, and when he could, he did. Um, and uh, and he was one of the people who said to me at a certain point, like he was like, "Man, you, you just you got to do this." You you you, and he was invoking the movies we knew we love, you know. He was saying, you know, Reds and um, and Unforgiven, and uh, you know that the Orson Welles starred in some movies that he yes, directed. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I don't want to compare myself to no, Orson no, Welles. No, no, but I mean, there's no, a but, long history. But, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, but it's it is true. I think I think look, many of us have been inspired by by people who who. Um, Took big swings at what I would call not just playing these wearing these hats, but but at at making a kind of making a, a big film about the American character. In a way, I think what 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 inspires me about Citizen Kane is is that it it treats people like adults. It assumes everybody is an adult. It assumes that people are smart enough to listen to a meditation on character and. Warren, when I, I remember talking to Warren, I was scared of it. I was scared of doing it. Even though I'd done it before, this was bigger. And I, I asked Warren, and he said to me, look, man, he goes, people told me that nobody wants to see a three-hour movie about American socialists with documentary footage from the era. And I said, you know, I want to see it. I want to see it. It matters to me. It's like I, am, I think that it has something to say about who we are, and I'm going to do it, you know? And... And I think you sometimes you just you have you to me you can reflect on the film that we now appreciate, but it helps me a lot to actually talk to people about how half baked and it felt and how many people told them you should not do this because it it puts you it you, it helps you go um, through your own experience of nervousness about the risks. And um, you say, well, people that I really admire went through that emotional experience of, of, of uncertainty and risk and 
the dare of it, and they got somewhere really interesting. So what what else am I doing? You know, um, I think that I think that it was all do. I, I felt it was all doable. The thing that I most I had the most anxiety about was that other actors help each other like create a bubble of of concentration within a a highly technical process, and I was concerned about my negative impact on the quality of my dance with with other people. Um, but my solution was is is these guys. Like I I I I specifically went to actors who for me in their theater training and in their background and in the quality of their work, I knew would show up with very, very fully realized performances and need very little from me and who, and who would help me get back into the intuitive place. Um, and they did. Uh, I, I, the, cast and, the cast of this movie was my, my, uh, was my own anchor as an actor. And, and, and it was people that I have deep relationships with or like in Gugu's case, whose work I was so drawn to, I, 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 knew, I knew we'd have a good um, collaboration. And I'm going to assume that you guys got what you needed from Edward as a director uh, at the same time you were responding to him as an actor. Yeah, it was very intimate, I think, you know, and I, uh, you know, having Edward there, you know, and wearing so many hats, literally and metaphorically, and, and being able to give us the notes and steer the scene, it felt almost like that moment coming from theater as well, where, you know, the actors get... Um, you know the play to themselves. You know, the, you're, you know the play is done, the rehearsals are done, and and you're all actors. And you're the you're the play is in your hands. It felt very um, collaborative. It was good. I mean, it, it's very fluid. You don't have that little delay where people are checking on things or are making judgments about things because the the director is right there with you. Uh, there's no question about trust. Everybody's there. He presents it as a project. Uh, a passion project. The other, I just joked, one stop shopping. But the truth is, if you have a question, he's right here, you know. And everybody gets behind that vision, and that helps focus you. So it's good. Uh, and also, a lot can be said for he directs us by what he's doing as an actor. He states the terms, and he owns. It's it's his world, and we enter that world and by how he's executing, how he's performing. Um, he tells us a lot about what world we're in. And then you, you play with him. So it's, yeah, it's immediate, it's urgent. It's, it's also efficient because this is a very ambitious project and we're doing it on a budget and you know, we weren't slow. We're, we're, we're executing. Yeah, it's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of, a lot of locations, a lot of scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, we made the film kind of almost like an independent film. We, we did make it as an independent film. Warner picked it up and, and were, have been amazing. But we, we had to make the film in the configuration of an independent film for, you know, uh, we only had originally 46 days to make the film, which was... was very challenging um, at this scale because we, we didn't want to do we didn't want it to be a diorama we wanted a, a, a car chase that you can see 10 blocks deep we wanted and also that the things that are taking place 
in this story are things taking place at a monolithic scale, at a, at a big scale, a society-changing scale. And the things that were lost, the consequences, they were whole neighborhoods, but they were also things like Penn Station. And it was sort of like, well, you need to see those ghosts. You need to see the ghosts of the scale of the loss, you know? And, um, and it was like, well, how do, we, how do we do that for, how do we do that for, you know, um, a, a very, very modest budget? And the thing is that the actors bolster me, but w when you're a director, in a lot of ways, you're, you're saying something absurd. You're like, this is what we're gonna do. And a lot of people run for the exits, but but you you um, you like if you get Dick Pope, who's you know one of one of the great cinematographers of the modern age. And for me, I, I did The Illusionist with him. I was blown away as I was watching Mike Lee's films that he shot, that he achieved um, he achieved a, a quality of photography in what I knew were very short schedules, exceedingly short, very little prep time with Mike Lee. And I would look at films like Vera Drake and, um, and Topsy Turvy and Mr. Turner and go, how the F did he, how could he have done this in that kind of a time? And with the way I know Mike works. And, I, and I, it was like, I need you, man. I need, I need the capacity to do this kind of scale and that kind of painterly work. Um, on, on a pace, you know, and, um, and, and Beth Mickle, who's a genius production designer, and Amy Roth, who's Ann Roth's niece, Roth's niece. and, um, and uh, costume designer, yeah. you know, it really, uh, you, you, you end up looking like you know what you're doing because other people lever the force of their talent mm -hmm. against the problem you've created, and somehow, suddenly, it, 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 like, in a way, all you're doing is trying to get people to understand the core aesthetic goal that you're going for, yeah. but they end up making you look great, you know? <laughs> yeah. So five years ago, you were here with Birdman, um, where Jazz was very much a character, and I feel like Jazz was very much a character in this film as well, and um, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about how that affected your character, and perhaps a little bit about your research um, playing with someone with Tourette's. Uh, sure, the, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, first off, like, your, your Lincoln Center pal down the road, Wynton Marcellus was, and like, outlet. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, 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 was, he was an enormous asset for me because I did, we, once we set the movie in the 50s, it seemed right. There's a wonderful passage in the book about Lionel's, um, his, his obsession with music as an extension and expression uh, of the way his mind works. And he talks about Prince and his music, but we obviously weren't gonna do that. Um, but um, I, I, love, I love the music in that era, the, the bop and hard bop of that period. It was extremely experimental. And if, if there was ever a music with a Tourettic quality to it, it's, it's that music and, um, of that specific era. And um, it was also a time and a place where the discriminatory forces that were at work excluding many people from the vision of the city were being end run by people like Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie who were essentially becoming iconic, highly potent artists that the world was acknowledging. Um, and so there's the, there was this kind of great 
you know, I think Michael K. Williams captures it really beautifully, this kind of thing that even in this moment, there's people who were really starting to own their, their power um, in spite of um, all that. And, uh, and I thought that uh, it would be wonderful. We basically, Winton and his great musicologist, Phil Schapp, helped us curate like what, what would have been played at that time. And, and Winton put that group of musicians together. Winton, Winton plays the horn under Michael K. Williams' performance. And, um, and that's like having, you know, that's like having like um, Derek Jeter come in and hit for your Little League softball team. It's like, it's like, it's, a, it's an amazing, it's amazing to get people with that level of talent bringing it in, into your process. And, and, it, and weird, weird, wild things happened. It was like, because um, Tom York wrote that ballad, but went and we, he kind of helped me come up with this idea to, that when, when Laura and Lionel dance, which is an important emotional moment, we, we all felt like, you know, if you're, if you're doing someone to watch over me, even if it's Miles Davis style, you're gonna go, oh, that, I know that song. And, and Winton sort of had the idea, why don't, we, why don't we take that really cool tune Tom's written and rearrange it as if Miles Davis was playing this. And, and so you have a more subliminal sense of familiarity with it. And um, the, again, people, people's talent stacking up on each other and then Winton loving Daniel Pemberton's score so much that he volunteered to play the lead horn through the whole score, you know? And, and those things start to just become, you know, they start to exceed the fantasy you had of, of what the musical tissue will feel like. And uh, I, I, but boy, you know, it, you, you, you're, you're, it's hard not to think, when you think about the films that, that you love in that vein and where music is, music is such a, a critical part of the hypnosis that makes films like this that are murky work. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, you, I'm sure you feel this way. It's always inauthentic to me that the music comes in so late because you're, you're having to, you, you, you need it earlier. You know, you need it earlier to validate your sense of whether parts of a film are working or holding or not. And sometimes it's this, it's such a sweet relief when suddenly the genius of these musicians drops into the film and all of a sudden, right. all of a sudden things that felt like sanded furniture but with no varnish on them, just boom, they become like, you know, like a Nakashima. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's really, yeah. it's really amazing. Um, and the second part of the question was your research for uh, into Tourette's? Yeah, well, the Tourette's syndrome is a very strange, strangely individualistic. It, it expresses itself completely differently in every person. And so there's a freedom in that. There's a creative freedom to, to pick and choose uh, authentic, symptomatic, you know, expressions from different people, make, give Lionel his own weave. Um, but there's terrific documentaries. I had met people, Robin Williams, when we worked on Death to Smoochie, had a really good friend who was a sculptor who had fairly, a fairly severe um, variation of Tourette's and I got to know him. And um, I thought that honestly the bigger challenge was that I think that a lot of, the biggest mistake with disabilities and the, the portrayal of them is the notion that 
the struggle with the disability is itself makes the person a saint. And I think my favorite things are the ones, that, you know, if you look at Daniel Day-Lewis in Jim Sheridan's great film, My Left Foot, of course it's a physically amazing performance, but what's really fantastic is they, they deal with the fact that he's a real son of a bitch sometimes, that he has ambition, that he has lust, that he has the full dimensions of a human being and that his growth is not tied exclusively to his struggle with his condition. That's why it's a great human performance. And I think it's the layers of humanity for me um, in this. It's the fact that Lionel is not a crusader. He is not a moralist. He's been extremely apathetic his whole life down inside his own problems. And until this woman says to him, yeah, like I got, you know, we all got something. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing in the world? Like, and, and it's sort of the shock of, I don't get to sit on the porch with a woman like that unless I'm, unless I'm, you know, getting on the barricades and doing something about these bad things that are happening too. And I like that part of his evolution, the evolution to not just to come out of his comfort zone and have to navigate his condition, but to actually change his own definition of what heroic is from being, you know, the things Frank is and the things that, to, to, to saying heroism is caring for other people, you know, and as Laura says, looking out, having people who look out for you and looking out for your, your community, your city. And, um, so I think that's, uh, the conditions one thing, but there's, it's like, if you ignore the, it, that's not the story. It's a mech, it's a, it's a, it's a prop in the story or it's a, it's a, a thing within the story that has to be a human story. How did you create Penn Station? Um, the best compliment, well, first of all, I, it, that's an opportunity to say, I talked about Dick, I talked about Beth and Amy. Um, there's a New York visual effects supervisor named Mark Russell who is a genius, like a genius. Like he, what he pulled off in the budget we had in this movie um, was unbelievable. The fact that that people don't know that that there was 680 something effect shots in the film um, is a testament to Mark's unbelievable rigor and artistry. And I think that um, you know uh, the best compliment we got was someone, another production designer, came up and said, Wait, "Did you go, was that Budapest? Did you go to Budapest?" <laughs> um, you know, and we were like, no, <laughs> you know, um, we, we did not. Um, oh, you didn't but, shoot it in Budapest. Was that? No. Yeah, okay. We, we did yeah. not, yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes people said, uh, like, they're, they're, you know, Penn Station, sadly, I mean, we, the, the architectural plans still exist. You can actually get the architectural um, drawings of Penn Station, and that gave us something to work with that, um, but it was it was a uh, it was one of those things that other people are sometimes asking you and you're asking yourself could he just find this clue in a bus station um, does it does it you know does it really need to be but I think that again like you there's you know the intellectual idea of that we lost our Victoria Station or our Gare Nord it it's like it's one of those things you say, but, but if you don't, if you can't like actually have the experience of realizing that you, you lost a transcendent space and that it's never coming back 
and that that's the cost of not minding the store, not people not paying attention to what people with power are doing for reasons that are not for our benefit. Um, that there's, there's, it's, it's the loss of, it's the, it's the treating of people as invisible, it's the loss of rich, dynamic communities, and it's the loss of enormous, iconic, transcendent things that, we, that, are, that, that, are, that diminish us. Like, it's like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, our, our senator, our late senator, you know, his, his, the great line about Penn Station was you, you used to descend into New York like a titan and now you crawl in like a rat. And, and it, you know, it changed literally your relationship to entering and exiting the city. And, uh, and it happened because um, for, for, for dark and nefarious reasons. And, um, and I wanted to, you know, it's one of those things you're like, well, it's gonna be hard, but let's just, do, let's just figure it out um, because there's something uh, non-intellectual about actually experiencing the space, you know? Um, I'm, you know, that's, it's amazing that you compared you, you and your team to a Little League softball, you know, team. Um, and you made a beautiful film, and really, thank you so much. Very proud to have can you Can I, here. yeah, can I Thanks say as we wrap up, um, Ken, like, your stewardship of this festival, I've been coming here since 1989. I came here, like, the year Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing came out, which was a film about New York by a director, writer, actor, and, uh, it changed my aspirational goal, but the, your stewardship of this festival has been like just so stellar. And to be the last film on the last night of your is a real privilege and honor. And we really, really salute you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.